This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics. Hopefully, I didn't sound too bad there. I'm sorry about that. No, the normal intro uh, is unfortunately on a file that is on a separate computer. I did get lucky, and I have a new computer now. It's a pretty cool. I like it. Um, my goal for this computer is to uh, uh, basically stream and record videos while playing games and, you know, just have fun. It's something I've always wanted to do. I've been looking up guides online, uh, like, you know, for starting your own YouTube channels and Twitch streaming, etc., etc. So hopefully I don't come out too bad. I, I think the audio, I sounded pretty well to myself when I was recording the audio, and hopefully I sound good to you guys. But anyways, that's just a small little thing. Uh, I won't do it again, I promise. I'm, I'm sure it's really bad. I'm actually, I'm actually um, dreading listening to it, but I thought it was something silly and fun and different. Anyways, so... Welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast, which focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pob, and today I'm going to be talking about the SoCal Open. This episode was originally going to have a guest. It was going to be a big episode with a, a lot of nitty-gritty tactics and, uh, you know, a different topic. But I decided to just talk specifically about the SoCal Open, mostly because I don't have a lot of time to record today. And also, I want to talk about some other things outside of 40k, uh, things happening in my life, things going on with my gaming gaming situations and, and what I've been doing lately. And just kind of, I'm going to kind of make this a little bit of a personal blog in the beginning, and then I'm going to talk about the SoCal Open. And obviously, I did miss the last two episodes. The Monday before previously was the SoCal Open. That was the end of, that was towards the end of October, October 22nd or the 23rd and the 24th and then the weekend after that was actually my daughter's first birthday uh, for those of you who don't know i do have a little one-year-old daughter she just turned one last week and uh you know i love her very much and so that friday was her birthday october 27th and then we had her birthday party on saturday which was an all-day thing uh which obviously took up a lot of time it was it was a party about 50 people showed up and then of course sunday was all cleanup and rest and relaxation uh i took care of her so my wife could hang out and enjoy herself because for the most part my wife did all the planning not really I didn't really do the party planning it was all my wife she made all the Amazon orders she set everything up you know she cooked food she she took care of everything so I, I just wanted to give my wife time to relax on Sunday which means I couldn't record and that's why there wasn't an episode last week but here I am now uh, I plan on recording once again every week weekly uh, I don't have a lot of stuff going on you know, my work at Frontline Gaming is coming down to a little bit of a halt in terms of uh, in terms of overtime and craziness. 
there there is the LVO is coming soon, the Las Vegas Open. So that's going to be jam packed. And the, you know, of course, with the holidays, I might I might take Thanksgiving off or December uh, for Christmas. So, but other than that, weekly schedule is coming back into effect next week. I've got a very fun guest lined up for you guys, a very fun topic, of one that I've been wanting to talk about forever. And considering the results of the SoCal Open, I think it's a great topic. And I, I want to hear what you guys think. What do you guys want to hear me talk about? Are there any guests you guys want me to bring on? You know, I've had Mini Wargaming Matt on. I've had Jeff in Control Robinson on. I've obviously had Reese and Frankie on. I, I've, yeah, I've had various people from other podcasts on. So I'm just, you know, who, who do you guys want? on the podcast i feel like at this point i i can reach out to anyone and bring them on i've considered you know bringing someone on like pete foley from gw you know asking him about the gw the rules and stuff although i think i i think i I think i'm going to seriously consider that after chapter approved comes out or maybe when eighth edition comes out in its entirety right because i've been i've been kind of flirting with the idea then i thought well you know uh, he might. There might be some things that he really doesn't want to reveal that we def- desperately want to ask him. Like, like, what's the, who's the next Primarch, and uh, are are uh, Blood Angels going to be any good, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I I kind of want to save that for uh, sometime after Eighth Edition has solidified in terms of the meta. So that'll probably be after once all the codexes come out, or maybe after Chapter Approved. I have no idea. But anyways, what do you guys want to hear? Is there anyone you guys want me to bring on? I would be more than happy to just have anyone on who who wants to talk about 40k tactics, 40k tournaments. It's a it's a topic that everyone loves to talk about. You know, even even the hob even the podcasts that focused on hobbying and the other aspects of 40k narrative, even those even those podcasts tend to digress and talk a little bit about tournaments and playing the game and little basic tactics and just in general the gaming side and the tournament side is a very popular fun topic to talk about which is you know why i have a podcast uh, that specifically talks about tournaments because i love talking about them so much speaking of talking about tournaments so much warzone atlanta next week i'm very excited for that one last year there was you know the warzone atlanta townar supremacy suit controversy uh this time last year we were worried about the supremacy suit which which is really really funny because I feel like if a large event allowed the supremacy suit now, we would kind of get the same same gripes and the same controversy. Uh, obviously, the Hammer of Wrath did allow the Talnar supremacy suit, and if you guys want to go back to that episode, I believe it's episode 20, sometime in August, uh, I played a Talnar supremacy suit, and I talked about that specific thing, banning power level 31 up, banning big, super heavy, gigantic creatures. Uh, my and just my general opinion on it is I think they are very unfun for the game and not that they're overpowered and and this is something that holds true for everything I believe in right uh in general Forge World I don't think Forge World is necessarily the best for the game as it is now we'll see after chapter approved uh but right now rules as is you know pre FAQs especially pre Forge World FAQs Forge World was in a really rough spot and I was very wary about you know, running Forge World units and, and playing against Forge World units and how how healthy of a meta they made 40k. So, so anyway, so, but the reason why is not because I think Forge World is overpowered, but just because their rules tend to be so radical and so different. And also, uh, you know, there were a lot of rules errors in the Forge World books. So, you know, that the household, that's basically the big reason why is there are a lot of rules errors. Rules are very different. They're, they're, they're very unique. And that, that does make Forge World very cool in the, the sense that they're, they have these cool models and these really weird, wonky rules to go with these models, and that makes those models really unique and different. 
but it can also wildly affect balance and how the game is played, especially if if the people who design the rules don't do their complete due diligence to make sure that the you know that the the meta and the rules the the rules that they make don't affect the meta. And that's and I'm not saying that the people who design Forge World rules are are wrong or they're bad rules designers, but I am saying that it traditionally GW doesn't fo- hasn't focused on that aspect of rules design. And that's something that, like, for example, a company like Wizards of the Coast, something they take very seriously and something they do focus on and emphasize on. So that's just something GW and Forge World don't emphasize in terms of rules design and balance in the meta. And, and you know, it's not to say that they're bad or that they won't do it in the future because they do seem to be doing that now. But at the time, Forge World, pre-Forge World FAQs, was was very rough. And same thing with the the Super Heavies. I feel like they're not, not that they're overpowered. It's just they they feel like they were designed for an entirely different game and to be played in an entirely different way and they just they don't interact well on the tabletop with for, you know with normal 2000 point you know non super heavy lists right and, and the same might go for you could make the same argument for things like like knights and and you know the the corn lord of skulls and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, hierophants and you can make the same argument for all those, and I would say that those are perfectly valid in that those kind of feel a little off in the game too. Uh, knights, the 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 thing is though is I I think I think knights are definitely not on the scale of a Talonar supremacy suit. Um, though you could make that argument and if someone were to say, hey, we feel like knights and and Lord the Lords of Skulls, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, need to be played on a different level of 40k, then go right ahead. I don't I don't care because that's your opinion and it's a valid one. Anyways, so that's besides the point. So back to Warzone Atlanta. Warzone Atlanta is going to be a very fun game, a very fun tournament. It'll have, it should have the same level of attendance as the SoCal Open, which had 133 players attend, which is really cool, uh, especially for an inaugural first year event. So the, the Warzone Atlanta is gonna, is it's going to be a big event. It last year it had over 100 players. I'm pretty sure it had over 100 players. You know, I'm not 100% sure. If anything, it had at around 100 players, and it's it's definitely capable of breaking triple digits very easily. It's, it's a very popular event, and it's definitely the largest event in that area, in the south area. Because, you know, it's in Atlanta, Georgia. It's it's right next to Arkansas. It's close enough to the Midwest area to pull from the Midwest teams, and it's close enough to the Nova, northern, northeastern side to pull from there. And it's the largest event that you know, people in Florida can attend, people in Georgia, obviously, Carolinas, where there's a lot of 40K. There's a lot of 40K players in that area, and that's kind of the big event there. So that's really cool. And uh, I'm interested to see where the meta goes. It, it'll be very fun to look back the week after Warzone Atlanta, to look back at SoCal Open and the Warzone Atlanta and see how those metas are different. Because the, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think they're allowing the Eldar Codex, so it's going to be very similar. In terms of the the meta, you know, there won't be an Eldar Codex. Um, actually, I'm not 100% sure. Let me just check that real quick. I will be right back. So it actually looks like the Eldar Codex release was on the released on the 28th because it went for pre-order on the 21st, and one week from the time it goes on pre-order is when it gets released. So it was released on the 28th, which means that the Eldar Codex will be in full effect at the Warzone Atlanta. Uh, there there is a reason why I was kind of iffy on that. I didn't know it was actually really close. The Eldar Codex just barely made the you know the required amount of time to be released. Anyways, so it looks like the Eldar Codex will be full in effect, which is really, really interesting considering how powerful that Codex is. I know Reese is having an absolute 
blast with it. He, he's just steamrolling people, doing really well. He's obviously talking a big talk. I don't think his list is that good, but it is a very powerful list. It's a it's an infantry heavy aspect warrior, you know, variety craft world Eldar list. It's really good. It's it actually looks really fun to play against as well as to play with. So Eldar are going to be out. So that'll that'll actually change things a lot. I'll still compare Warzone Atlanta results to the SoCal Open results just for you guys, and just because they're going to be so big. And then, of course, after Warzone Atlanta is going to have, there's going to be the Renegade Open, which is going to be another really really big event. You know, maybe the, the Tyranids will be out by then, so I don't know if the, they'll allow the Tyranids at that event. But if they do, that'll be another meta shift, so we'll be able to see the progression of, you know, how the Eldar being added affects the meta, and then, of course, how the Tyranids being added will affect the Eldar being added to the meta, etc., etc. And then finally, come December, there's really no tournaments in December. In January, there's a few small tournaments. Uh, T-Shift isn't going to be around this year, so there'll be a, a larger tournament in Arizona right before right before the LVO, and then right after the LVO, there's going to be an event in Canada run by our very own Scardcast. Not our very own, but my friend Scarry from Scardcast. Uh, and then that'll be the bash. And then from there, we start the new ITC, ITC season. So essentially, there's going to be a few, two more big events coming up before the Las Vegas Open, two more huge majors before the Las Vegas Open. So around December time, I'll probably release... A, a Las Vegas Open meta primer, maybe maybe after maybe after December, maybe in early January, I'll, I'll release a big meta analysis of the Las Vegas Open with you know what lists have been winning, what lists haven't been winning, what you expect to see, top players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Should be a lot of fun. It should be a real blast, and I'm really excited for that. So look forward to that, and of course look forward to the Wars on Atlanta and Renegade Open coverage, which is going to be happening probably in two weeks. So Warzone Atlanta is coming up this week, at the end of this weekend, which means I won't actually know. I'll, I'll, I might be able to record and talk a little bit about it as I'm recording, but I won't know the results until after I publish and record my episode. So it'll be the following week. So next week will be a podcast with a guest, and then the week after that will be Warzone Atlanta coverage, and then the week, two weeks after that will be the Renegade Open coverage. Should be a lot of fun. Anyways, on to what I've been doing. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Warhammer Shadespire. If you don't know what Warhammer Shadespire is, it's not that silly Age of Sigmar game that GW made and are trying to promote. It, it's actually better than that. I kind of wish that they didn't make it an Age of Sigmar game, uh, just because I've seen a lot of players kind of just put it in that category. They're like, oh, it's just like Warhammer Silver Tower, Warhammer Quest Silver Tower. You know, it's just like one of those games, or Necromunda, or et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just a boring box game. That, that no one ever, is ever going to play, which is actually far from the truth. It's a it's a competitive living card game with you know models and rules, and it's going to have its own errata. It's, it's going to be it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, but unfortunately, it's it's linked to Age of Sigmar means that a lot of players are already I've seen a lot of players already kind of you know downplaying it and saying that oh it's just an Age of Sigmar game. And a lot of people I know who play Age of Sigmar are switching over to Warhammer Shadespire, which is not a good sign in that Age of Sigmar players are going to be primi primarily playing Warhammer Shadespire instead of everyone, like what I'm sure they're intending. Because a, a game, a competitive game like Shadespire needs a large following, a large group of people playing it, not just a small group. It needs a large group of people playing it for innovation, for strategy, for intrigue, for learning, to make the game even better, to give the, the, the game developers more games to play test. Because if there's a small meta, you won't get the people who 
truly break the game and then you won't know which cards are truly broken until it's too late so that's why something like magic the gathering is so successful and why they take so long to decide if they want to ban a card or not right they'll, they'll allow several pro tours to go through and you know lots of events lots of jeep lots of gps lots of pptqs and ptqs etc lots of magic online games etc etc and they build up this massive massive database of what cards are being used and what cards aren't and what cards are winning and what cards need to get nerfed and then finally they make a decision based off of that data and what they've seen something that 40k i'd like 40k to aspire to and something that gw is definitely working on but for a game like Shadespire that's billed as a, a competitive game that people want to run and, and they want that kind of Wizards of the Coast-esque, you know, rules design and and, and bans and erratas, etc., etc., you need a large playtest pool. You need a loss, large pool of games being played so that the game developers can make, make an accurate, you know, assessment of the meta and, you know, make the game better. So, Warhammer Shadespire, pull and through it. If you haven't heard of it yet... It's really, really fun. There are four warbands right now. There's the Stormcast Eternals, which are the the Sigmarines, the you know the big dudes in armor, the good guys. There's Corn Warband, you know, they're Corn Berserkers, uh, they're Corn Barbarian dudes, like cultists but stronger and cooler and better. Uh, there's the Skeletons, the Sepulchra Guard, who are just basically skeletons, and then there are the Iron Jaws, who are basically orcs. They're 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 orcs. They, you know, the big armor, they're they're strong and they're orky, and they're cool and they're tough. So check it out if you haven't checked out Warhammer Shadespire. It's it's definitely if you're looking for that quick competitive itch, but you still want to have like pretty models on the board, you know, but you don't have time to play 40k games, but you're a very competitive player, check Shadespire out. Like seriously, it, it's as far as card games go, it's a living card game and not a collectible card game. Uh, the big difference between this is a living card game has has cards that once you purchase them you know they're yours and you don't have to collect things you don't have to buy tons and tons of packs to get that one cool ultra rare card every every pack comes with the same cards and you can only have one of each copy of a card in your deck so you only need to buy one expansion pack and then boom you have all the cards playable to everyone and what that means is it's less pay to play pay to win and more skill based right because because everyone has access to the same cards because you only have to buy three sets to have all the cards in the entire game, right? And then after that, you only have to buy each expansion to have all the cards in the entire game. So because everyone has access to all the cards, you don't have to worry about spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on buying the super awesome rare card that'll make your deck amazing. Uh, it becomes more skill-based, uh, which is, you know, very, very important. It's what Fantasy Flight Games has done with their games, like with X-Wing. You know, speaking of X-Wing, I've been playing a lot of X-Wing lately. I won't bore you guys with that, but essentially, I've been playing a lot of X-Wing and Shade Warmer Shades Byron, and just other 40k games other than 40k. And I'll get to that at the end, uh, reason why. But basically, that's what Fantasy Flight Games made their money off of, right? That they're really good at designing games. I don't think they're the best at keeping games going. You know, with terms in you know in terms of games like Netrunner and Game of Thrones. You know, they. they the Star Wars Destiny, they design these cool games and they're like, people like them and then they just don't take off. You know, or they don't have that longevity that Magic does. At least we haven't seen it yet. You know, X-Wing looks like it's going to be making a resurgence. Who knows? That's something, and this is all something I have to keep track of because, uh, you know, I have a, I, I run this full, 
the Frontline Gaming secondhand shop. So I have to keep an eye on what's selling and what isn't selling and what people want to buy and what, you know, where I can make the most money for Frontline Gaming. So, it, you know, that's the reason why I, I know all these about these games. But anyways, finally, I have also been playing Warhammer Total War, which is more Warhammer stuff, not 40k stuff. And Warhammer Total War is such a fun game. Uh, I'm playing a Dark Elves campaign right now. It should, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you you basically, if you don't know what Warhammer Total War is, it's, it's a game where you're playing in the Warhammer Fantasy universe, not Age of Sigmar, but the actual old universe, the old world, and you you pick a faction and you play them and you build up that faction and you take over the world of Warhammer and you battle, you know, all the other factions. So if you're Dark Elves, you're battling High Elves and Skaven and Chaos and Orcs and Goblins, etc. It's a lot of fun. Uh, there's huge epic battles. You, you can hire heroes and hire assassins to take out other people's champions and other people's heroes. If you're, if you're Dark Elves, obviously, I think other factions can do it too, but that's just what I do, what I'm doing. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's built in that world. It's really fun. It's a, it's a turn-based strategy game. It's a video game. Uh, I just got it on steam, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I, I think I might start trying to, to download or not download to, uh, record and play those games and put those on YouTube, kind of start that myself. Cause I think that'd be just kind of fun to do a little fun side hobby, but that's what I've been doing. I've been playing X-Wing. I've been playing Warhammer Shadespire and I've been playing Warhammer Total War. And the reason why I'm telling you all this is because I am waiting for chapter approved. You know, we're, we just, we started this frontline gaming league, this frontline gaming 40 K league where we play six games in a league in nine weeks. And then there's like a, a regional winner and then they play the champion of another region. And it's kind of like this simple game and tune in the signals where, where Reese and Frankie explain it and detail to a lot more, but I am in this frontline gaming league, but y you know, I kind of, I kind of feel like it's a last hurrah to, to eighth edition as we know it now. Because chapter approved is around the corner, so I'm very hesitant in, in purchase 40k purchases. You know, I'm not going to make any big 40k purchases. Uh, I have seen a lot of really cool models that I'd really like to purchase, but I, I don't know if they're going to. I don't know if their points are going to get increased or decreased, or or what you know what uh, GW is going to change about you know certain factions. So if you are if you are interested in purchasing, you know things that you want fun things like now is the time to do it right if you're looking at that unit of uh biovores or pyrovores there's just some random unit that you've always wanted but you're kind of worried because they're really bad right now i would probably purchase those or look into purchasing those uh because they're probably going to get cheaper especially the really really bad units but i don't know for sure that it's everything's a gamble at this point when you're purchasing things because chapter approved is around the corner and chapter approved is going to change everything. They're going to change the points costs for multiple, multiple units. They're going to change rules. Uh, they're going to change tournament format as we saw with the chapter approved previews, uh, specifically the boots on the ground rule and the change to the C's, the, the change to the C who goes first to the plus one. So chapter approved is going to have a lot of big changes and that's essentially why I'm kind of holding off and, and, taking a step back from 40k uh, I'm not going to any big tournaments I'm just going to sit relax you know take a look at the meta see how it's developing kind of laugh at, at some of the craziness that's going on and then when chapter approved hits boom it's a brand new game it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm going to jump right into it because at that point chapter approved is going to be out and then the there will be you know maybe six or seven codexes left and then we'll hit eighth edition run with the, you know with the ground running with eighth edition and the new ITC season and then that new ITC season next year that's going to be this a golden age of 40k and 
it, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a blast. You know, it, it'll be completely balanced. We'll finally fully have this vision of of what GW wanted for their game when they announced 8th edition. Something I've been waiting for for a very long time. And Chapter Approved is just the first step in that. And that's something I'm very excited about. But that's also the reason why I, I haven't been playing a lot of 40k lately. I actually don't have a game to talk to you guys about, unfortunately. I haven't played a real game of 40k since, hmm, since the Iron Halo back in October. So I, I've been... You know, that was back, I'm sorry, yeah, that was back at the beginning of October, the end of September. So it's been more than a month since I played a game of 40k, and, and I am sorry, I, I do like to keep myself, you know, well prepared, and I do like to play 40k and, and make sure that, you know, I'm up to snuff, and th that I'm not lagging behind a little bit, but just the the chapter approved coming so soon, it's just making me, just makes me kind of want to play other things until 40k blows up again essentially also i can't play in the las vegas open i'll be too busy working and running things and and doing promoting it and you know covering it so i won't be able to play in it so even if i do even after chapter approved comes out i won't actually get a chance to play until sometime in after february when the las vegas open hype has died down uh, which also makes me very hesitant to start playing more 40k so for now i'm going to put 40k game playing 40k games on the back burner i'm going to see if i can paint some models up this isn't a hobby podcast, so I won't talk to you guys about that unless you guys really want to know. If you guys really want to know what I'm up to, but uh, yeah, anyways, so that's that's basically just giving you guys a quick, you know, breakdown of of my life and and my gaming life and what I want to do and my directions and you know where I'm heading and things that might affect you guys. You're listening in the future, so SoCal Open. We're gonna talk about the SoCal Open. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of research in this, uh, and I know a lot of people have been telling me that they like it when I talk by myself in the episode, but they don't like it when I'm not prepared. So in this case, I, I actually I did a lot of research. I have facts. I have numbers. I have you know points, and I did a lot of research in this. And and the SoCal Open is something I, I'm very proud of. Frontline Gaming, we did a great job, I think, with the event, and so I want to kind of you know, buckle down. I did my homework and we're just going to jump right into it. So these are things that I learned about the SoCal Open and things that you guys can take away from the SoCal Open. But before we get into it, if you want to see any lists that I'm talking about, if you're curious about uh, an orc list that I just mentioned or a player, you know, you want to know what they're running, subscribe to the Best Coast Pairings Player app. Please, please do it. The Best Ghost Pairings Player app is an app that not only lets you run events, not only lets you see what people are playing in events, but it also, with a subscription fee, which is very, very small, it's minimal, it's five bucks a month, it's a Starbucks, you know, once a month, you know, not a big deal. Just give up your Starbucks for one month or don't, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, it's not that expensive and you get access to a huge database of all the ITC events that have been using the Best Coast Pairings player app, which is which is a ton. It's essentially all, everything, just not to give you guys too much of a trade secret, but everything I'm going to be talking about right now, I essentially pulled it all from this app. You know, some of it, some of it's come out of, some of it has come out of the, some, some of it has come out of the, uh, the, you know, talking on Facebook, like the Facebook groups, you know, for, for some of this, some of this information, but essentially the best coast pairings player app is primarily where I get all of the information for both this episode and for all of my tournament coverage in past episodes. I do get information from Facebook, from Facebook groups, uh, 
talking to people personally in either via Facebook or via email. I do reach out to TOs. I reach out to players to figure out, you know, what exactly happened at events, things, things that you can't really, you can't really find out from the best coast pranks player app, you know, like stories, who got disqualified for what, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, in combination with the best coast pranks player app, this is why I have all this tournament coverage for you guys and why I have all these informations. Uh, and then for those of you who are wondering why I don't tell lists uh, a whole lot, or I've talked about lists very lightly. It's, I feel like the best coast pairings player app is, it is such a good resource and you should use it. So if you're curious about lists, you know, I, I do just recommend to go there and also talking about lists gets kind of tedious. You know, you're, you go over the entire list and you know, what was in the list. So I'll give you a brief rundown of the basics of what the list is, but if you want a more detailed explanation of what's in the list or a picture of the list itself, subscribe for the best coast pranks player app download it on your apple or android device and you can from there you can look at lists in past events period and another cool thing and this is a little tip for those of you guys who are trying to take your game to the next level if you go to the best coast pairings website bestcoastpairings.com you can look at events and see how many rounds they are and typically with a with events that are five or six rounds those are the larger events so what i usually do is i'll go through the best coast pairings.com website i'll look at rounds the rounds with that are five and you know like five and six round events i'll tab those and then when i'm done tabbing them after a certain time period uh, after i'm done covering a certain time period i'll go in there and i'll see which events actually had a lot of people uh, I try to shoot for more than more than 40, 30 or 40, you know, GT status, like for sure GT status. And then from there, I look them up on the Best Coast Pairings Player app, and that's how I determine what I want to see and what lists I want to see, right? So if I want to, if I, you know, I see that there were a lot of, there are a lot of good tournaments in October, you know, I'll look them all up on the BCP app, and then I'll start looking at lists from there and start seeing what those players, you know, because those players, you know that those players that attended those events, they played six opponents, the players who did really well. Uh, they played lots of opponents. They did really well. They had a varied, you know, varied variety of people. Also, the variety of lists is just, it's really cool. You get to see interesting new lists, whereas if you see, like, small events, like, you know, eight, 10, 12-man events, the, those might be okay for, for scouting and for figuring out what works best for you. Uh, but a lot of times, those events are, are have their own internal metas, you know, dominated by a few people who are really, really good, who, who might, they might do really well with Dark Angels, for example, or uh, Orcs, or maybe not Orcs, Orcs are pretty good faction, uh, but Death Watch, right? They might have a few good players that dominate with those factions, and all the other players are trying to, do tend to, to gear their list towards beating other players, right? So that small meta isn't necessarily the best for designing what you want out of your list for attending large events, but it might help. My point, my entire point is the Best Coast Pranks player app is a great tool. And if you, if you want to take your game to the next level and you want to see what everyone else is running, go there. Don't rely on me or other articles online. The Best Coast Pranks player app is by far the best way to just get raw data. Anyways, on to the results. So we do have a top eight. The top four, first I will talk about the final four, the four players who, who made the, all of them are in the top eight still. Uh, it was essentially, it came down to Brandon Grant versus Ryan Mead and David Johansson versus Justin Gibbs. David Johansson, Justin Gibbs, and Brandon Grant uh, and Ryan Mead were all 5-0 and going into the event. 
So going into the final game after the top four, we you know the final round, we were set to have two undefeated players, two six and zero players, which which is fine. You know we don't have a true, we won't have a true undefeated player. But in t- in typical frontline gaming large event fashion, somehow luckily enough, there there was a tie, and we're I'm going to talk about. I talked about this last two episodes ago. Uh, when I talked about the ITC missions and talked about you know how what what their point is and and how you can break them and essentially there's a lot of there's a lot of points involved in the ITC missions. You, both players can score a maximum of 42 points. Obviously, both players won't both score 42 points, but with a maximum of 42 points, there's a lot more variation for preventing ties, right? It's, you don't have players you know like in pre in previous ITC missions, one person could win the primary, one person could win the secondary, which were equally were worth equally, and then tertiaries, you know, it it, it came down to three point a three point variance in tertiaries, which could very easily mean both players tie. It's it's very easy to tie in the old ITC missions. Now coming into this game, that was a theory anyway. So coming into this tournament, I expected there to be zero ties. Which was actually not the case at all. There was actually a player who had four ties. His first three games were ties. And then his fourth game was a loss. And then he tied his fifth game. And then he lost his sixth game. So he went 0-4-2. And And he wasn't the only player. There were a lot of players who tied in the the tournament. And after doing some math, between the Bay Area Open, which used the old ITC missions, and the SoCal Open, which used the new ITC missions, there were actually more ties in the new ITC missions than at the Bay Area Open. I mathed it out. It it, it came out to an increase of of like 120%, right? So I think there were five or six ties in the BAO, and there were you know there were uh, 10 or 12 ties at the SoCal Open. It it was something like that. It was either it was 15 ties, I think, was the most. I, I I don't remember that this number was like was was like you know right after SoCal and hit I I I, uh, I wrote this number down on I Facebook messaged it to someone and I just completely lost it but uh, essentially the there were more ties in SoCal Open by a large margin than at the Bay Area Open right so there hopefully that's a trend that we won't see more often because unfortunately with the new missions a lot of people weren't finishing their games on time either. Right, they were learning, you know, in combination with the Horde army kind of dominating the meta right now, and also the new missions. Uh, a lot of people weren't finishing their games in a reasonable time, which means there wasn't a lot of scoring, um, which means that there were more ties. Maybe that's my theory, or maybe there's going to be more ties. But either way, this this gentleman who who started off the you know day one going zero zero and three and tying his first three games, that is absolutely hilarious. And if anyone were to ever in the new format tie all six of their games, I would equate that to winning a large event because you know how difficult it is to match points with your opponent, right? So you're you're threading the needle every single turn. You know you're you're intentionally failing charges, intentionally moving your dudes off of objectives, all to perfectly match your opponent's point. And your opponent is probably trying to win too, right? They're they're not they're not trying to lose. They're probably trying to win, especially in your first few games. So it, it's just if anyone manages to go like zero zero and six using the new ITC missions, let me know. That would be absolutely hilarious. And anyone who can does manage to do that, kudos to you because that that's a very serious it's a very serious thing to do. It's a very very cool thing to do. So why ties are important. David Johansson and Justin Gibbs did end up tying, which meant that the top table, Brandon Grant and Ryan Mead were the winner of that table would 
obviously decide who would win. Uh, unfortunately, and I'm not calling out Ryan Mead. Ryan Mead is an amazing guy. He's a close friend of mine. Uh, he's a great player. He's not a not a cheater. Uh, he's a stand-up guy, and this was just an honest mistake. His list was found to be illegal, pointed out to someone, pointed out to us by people in chat, and we had to disqualify him. Now, this was this big thing online that I'm really not going to get into in this podcast. I feel like it's been beaten to death over the last couple of weeks, but essentially his list was illegal. We fixed the list, and then Brandon Grant and Ryan Mead played their their game out anyways, and Brandon Grant ended up winning. So it didn't end up matter. It didn't end up mattering a whole lot. I think Brandon Grant still would have beaten Ryan Mead, and they still would have won. Obviously, Ryan Mead feels differently. He feels like uh, he definitely could have beaten Brandon Grant, and he probably he definitely could have. He's not a bad player. He had a really good list, uh, but I feel like ultimately Brandon Grant would have won the game anyways, just because he, he's a phenomenal player and his list was was designed to to maximize points and do really well. Uh, and one other thing about Brandon Grant. Uh, you know, that I want to mention real quick is he finished all of his games on time or his opponents conceded, right? None of his games went to time, but he was running 200 models. He was running just as many models as everyone else, everyone else who wasn't finishing their games. Justin Gibbs uh, was what his last few games, Justin Gibbs's games didn't, didn't go to full completion, right? And that actually showed because when David Johansson and Justin Gibbs played on the table two in the top four, they're both five and zero. Oh, uh, their, their game, I think, only went to turn three. You know, so it, if Justin had just played out, but if that game had just gone faster and both players had gotten more points, there definitely wouldn't have been a draw and there definitely would have been a chance that one of them could have won the whole tournament instead of both of them tying and getting second and third place. So that's just something to note. It, the way the missions are, Dietese missions are designed now, you you are penalized for, for not finishing your games for not going to five or six turns right because you have less point you score less points which means you you get a lower chance you get a lower ranking and then you get a, a worse chance of of doing really well and a higher chance of drawing right because a lot of the draws were also lower low point draws they were like 19 to 19 i think the johansson and justin gibbs was was 16 to 16 it was just it was, they're they're low point draws they're not high point draws it's not like 35 to 35 where both players are just scoring like crazy that doesn't happen so, uh, luckily, David Johansson and Justin Gibbs did draw, which means we did have a true undefeated, Brandon Grant. Brandon Grant was running an Astro Militarum list with a lot of bodies, Toroxes, Militarum Tempestus Scions, and five Primaris Psychers. One other thing to note is Brian, Brandon Grant also had the highest strength of schedule at 26,959, which means his opponents won a combined 26, 9, and 1. That is crazy. His opponents, and one thing is, you might think like, oh, well, he played, you know, because he kept winning all his games, he, of course, played, you know, all the best players, and yeah, that's true, but typically your highest strength of schedule person is someone, you know, in the top 20 or someone in the top 10, someone who who uh, played and lost to all those really good players, right? And they just, they kept getting, they, they kept doing really, they kept scoring high enough to to play the best person who lost from the previous round, right? The undefeated person who lost from the previous round. So typically the person who goes first in the entire event doesn't get doesn't have the highest strength of schedule. It's usually someone a little lower down. Uh you know, but Brandon Grant did really well. He he had the highest strength of schedule. His opponents went to combined twenty six, nine and one. And if you if you keep that in mind, he was six of those nine losses, which means that if you take away Brandon Grant's 
you know, his perfect 6-0 record playing all those guys, his opponents went a combined 26-3-1, which means that that his opponents lost or tied to non-Brandon Grant players four times, which which is crazy. Other than that, they beat every single one of their people except for Brandon Grant, which is which is insane. So I just thought that stat was kind of cool. Second place, David Johansson from the Double Dutch Rudders. David's a really, really nice guy. He was running a really cool Chaos Space Marine list, and that's something you'll see a lot of Chaos Space Marine lists are a lot more varied now in this new meta than other lists, which was which was pretty cool. Uh, he was running a unit, a Chaos Space Marine list with five units of Obliterators and no Primarchs, no Magnus. No Mortarian. Uh, he, he, I believe he had like some psychic support. He had Armin. He did have Malefic Lords, unfortunately. But he, he was essentially running, you know, a five, a unit, a, a fifteen Obliterator list with the Changeling and a lot of cool, you know, uh, Berserkers, the usual suspects in the Chaos Space Marine army. No Emperor's Children, Noise Marines, and he did really well. He got second place. And I just wanted to let you guys know that if you're a Chaos Space Marine player, there is a way to win without Magnus and Mortarian. You might still have to run things that other people are running, so you won't be your special snowflake. And it's it's actually very hard to be a true special snowflake in com in any competitive game. Uh, you know, in, in Magic, you're actually it's actually kind of seen as like a negative thing. Like, oh, you're just trying to be a special snowflake, winning with their cool tech instead of you know netlisting like everyone else. It's more of a derogatory term. Uh, in 40k, it's kind of the norm everyone tries to win their own way but i just want to let you guys know that if you're if you want to win your own way and and you you completely want to stay away from the things everyone else is running you, you know unless you're a phenomenal player and you work really hard and you play you know 30 games a month you're i think you're not going to do like i think i think you're not going to have a lot of success in terms of tournament winning and and no you know fame and and prize support winning, et cetera, et cetera. You're not gonna have a lot of success by not running what by by not running what everyone else is running. So that aside, David Johansson was running a, a unique list in terms of he was running five units of obliterators, which no one else is really running. Obliterators are really good. You do see them pop up from time to time in usually in squads of one or squads of two, but he was running five units, so they made up the majority of his army by by a large margin. And he got second place, so maybe there's a thing there that that we're not seeing. And also, the no Magnus and no Bartarian thing is huge. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about those stats later, but that that's 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 actually very important, very key. Uh, Justin Gibbs was running a Grey Knights list with Imperial Guard. He was running four Grey Knight Grandmasters and a, a an HQ detachment with a lot of guard, a lot of guard bodies and a lot of guard artillery. That was the list. One thing I would like to note is he was his faction was Grey Knights, uh, but he was essentially running like a little over a thousand points in Grey Knights in one detachment, and then Guard in another. And I just want to get into a quick rant. That's still a Grey Knights list. Like I know it doesn't, I know it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a Grey Knights Imperial Guard hybrid. And yes, that is true. But he was still using over a thousand points in an underpowered faction, right? It was still a Grey Knights list. And I firmly believe that Grey Knights, the the they don't feel like they were designed to not have allies, right? They, they don't feel like a complete codex with, with a complete army, you know, that, that had, that can do a little bit of everything and have access to a lot of stuff. They feel like a very single minded army that needs allies to do other cool, unique things. And I feel like that was an intentional design. I might be wrong. You guys can disagree with me. That's okay. But essentially 
that means that he was using a, a over a thousand points in an uh an underpowered faction of an underpowered faction and if you were to take away the nemesis dreadnought grandmasters from his list i guarantee you he wouldn't have the same results he might do better he might do worse uh but the point is is that he went five zero and one with with while using an underpowered factions units as an integral part of his list so gray knight you know gray knight units were a big part for him going five zero and one so that just keep that in mind gray knight players means that yeah you are probably going to need some allies and and it's not you're not going to be able to run a pure gray knight list but the potential is there and that that's i think the more important thing and then focusing on just the great that it's a gray knight faction list but it only has you know 1001 points of gray knights or whatever uh next ray ahumada from temecula we went five and one with Inari. He's actually the first of two Inari players in the top eight, which I think is kind of cool. It's kind of nice to see two non non Imperium and non Chaos lists in the top eight. But Ray Amato ran Inari. He had Storm Guardian, lots of Storm Guardians, lots of Wave Serpents, and he he. Fun fact: He lost his first game, is for the first game of the tournament. He lost it, and then submarines to the highest point score with a single loss. So he went five and one. He was out of all the other people went five and one. He had the highest score out of all of them. So he essentially submarines to fourth place to the best of his record. And he lost his first game. That's that's another thing that's also really hard to do. Uh, because typically you, you won't have your strength of schedule. You won't have a good strength of schedule tiebreaker because you're playing people who've already lost a game. And also, you, you know, once you get past a certain point, it'll it gets a lot harder to max out points and max score points. You know, because once you go to four and one and three and one, you start playing people who lost, you know, who were undefeated, who who lost a single game, who were really really good, right? You start getting people like Brandon Grant and uh, like Ryan Mead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Ray Almada did really well, and the second, the fifth place was James Carmona. Uh, James went five and one as well. He lost a heartbreaker to our very own my team's uh, relentless D's, Nikhil Cena who uh, I'm going to give a special shout out at the end of the top eight. But J James Carmona's list is, I feel like it was the strongest list going into this tournament, even better than Brandon Grant's list and a lot of the other Imperial Guard lists. And I don't want to explain his list too much because it's there's really a lot to explain. But essentially what it is, is it's a lot of bodies backed behind, uh, behind Magnus, 40 cultists, 40 Alpha Legion cultists, and two big units of Corn Berserker, Alpha Legion Corn Berserkers. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, right? He's got a lot of brimstones. He's got a, like three malefic lords. He has a renegade marauders who who are really hard to deal with. He's got other cultist units. So he's got this hodgepodge of with a smattering of artillery of bodies, right, to cover the entire board. And then he puts the corn berserkers, the two units corn berserkers, the forty cultists, and Magnus. Usually Magnus isn't in your face, but he he puts pressure with those units. Right and says here, deal with these forty cultists that have a minus one to hit. Deal with these two corn units of corn berserkers. If you don't, they will table you single-handedly. In the meantime, I'm going to cover the entire board with this impossible to kill horde while you're busy dealing with these these bodies I put in your face. It's a very very powerful list. I simplified it dramatically. He, you know, there's obviously a lot of tricks to it, a lot of little tech. If you want to look at his list, go to BCP and subscribe. It's it's definitely worth a look at. It's it's a very interesting list. But like I said, going into this event, I felt like James Carmona's list was probably the best list at the event. It, it was the it was the most fine tuned. It you know it had 
he played the crap out of it. He's been playing a lot of games with it. It, it, it fit the meta just right. You know, it, it's just the fact that he lost was, was really surprising. And um, the fact that he did so well was not surprising. So James Carmona in fifth place, sixth place, Adam Gotti. Uh, he was running an Inari list that was very different from Ray Ahumada's list. The only, the only similarities between both of their lists were the Wave Serpents. And I believe both of them also brought a Hemlock Wraith Fighter. But Adam Gotti ran... Oh, they also both brought the Incarn as well, who's amazing. Uh, Adam Gotti brought a heavy dose of a heavy dose of Wraith units, so he had Wraith Guard and Wraith Blades inside a, inside Wave Serpents, and then he combined that with the Incarn and other things, and he went five and one. Now, a list like that, it doesn't strike me as the kind of list that fits well in this meta because he has a hard time dealing with hordes. Unlike Ray's list, who has a lot of Storm Guardians, so they can they can do really well, especially with the Inari rule, in dealing with hordes and cleaning up cultists and cleaning up Space Marines. But the the Wraiths don't do that. So Adam Gotti definitely played the crap out of his list, and it's been the same. He's been playing the same style of list for two editions now, right? Ever since the Inari came out. So. As soon as the Strength and Death rule came out, uh, Adam Gotti's essentially very changed his list very, very little. And he's still been running the Incarn. He's still been running Wraith Guard. And he's still been doing roughly the same thing. And he's still been winning uh, so consistently. So that's something I want to give Adam Gotti a shout out. Because doing really well consistently across two editions with, this, with similar lists is extremely hard to do. Uh, seventh place was Ryan Mead, who did get disqualified, but he still got seventh place. From I still wanted to give him a shout out because he did earn that seventh place, and his his list error, though still bad and still worth being DQ'd over, was very minimal. And he, you know, with some checking and and with the proper list, he would have ended up at this. I'm sure he would have ended up at this place anyways. Uh, Ryan Mead was running a Magnus Mortarian and a Renegade Knight, so I call him the Mag Morty Knighty list. It's a list that's been popping up a lot lately. It's essentially you run a double Ren a double uh, Gatling Cannon Renegade Knight with Magnus and with Mortarian, and they kind of just you know destroy the board. You take over the whole game, and then you just back them up with Malefic Lords and Cultists and Brimstone Horrors. That's it. You you just you back them up. You back the, th the arguably three of the three best Lords of War in the game with arguably the best troop choices and best HQ in the game. Uh, you know, it's just obviously it's a very simple combination. It's very powerful. It, it doesn't. It's not easy to run. It is still really hard to run. It, it's not an auto win list, but it, it's a list that if you're looking for a low model count army but you really want to do well that might be the list for you you know it, it's not it, it's very, it's probably the most net listy out of all of the lists in the top eight in that it, it's very similar the both lists were very similar and they're very easy to emulate and copy and so the when i say both lists aaron hayden who got eighth place who's also part of relentless d my team he was also running a mag morty nighty list very similar to Ryan Mead's list. They were both running Magnus. They're both running Mortarian. Both running the double Renegade Gatling Cannon Knight. Ryan Mead was also running Plague Drones and kind of like a mini Plague Drone star. Whereas Aaron Hayden was going in the more traditional Brimstones, Cultists, Malefic Lords, backing Magnus Morty and the and Renegade Knight. So those that's your top eight. So we had a lot of Chaos players. We had three Chaos players, four Chaos players, uh, only two Imperial Guard players, or two Imperium players, one Guard, one Grey Knight, half Grey Knight, half Guard, and then two Inari players. And that that's it. That's your top eight. It's not... Uh, I, I'd like to see a more di diverse top eight, but I, I understand that right now, Imperium and Chaos are the two best super factions by a mile. And 
and that that's the way it is. So unfortunately, until the Eldar and Tyranids get their codexes, that's what we're going to be seeing. So wanted to give a special shout out to Nikhil Sina, who he switched factions a few months ago, and he got ninth place. He went five and one and got ninth place at the SoCal Open. So he just barely missed breaking out into the top eight. And he switched factions from Tau to Chaos Space Marines. And he went five and one, and he beat James Carmona, James Carmona, who I felt was the favorite to win the whole thing. He was a serious underdog in that game, and I just wanted to give him a quick shout out because Nick Hill, you did a great job, man. Especially switching factions and radical factions. He went from from like uh, commanders to Tau to Chaos Space Marines, right? The Magnus and and Chaos Space Marine good stuff with Noise Marines and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's just it's it's a radical faction change, and you know I think in this case it's definitely the faction and not the player um, because Nikhil hasn't been doing too well with his Tau lately in tournaments that I've seen him attend. But boom, he switches to a, a stronger faction and he does better unexpectedly. So the first thing I I, I learned about the SoCal Open, I just want to give some things some things that I learned about the SoCal Open, the number one most important thing that I got from it was to always check your lists. Always. There were a few illegal lists, including the one at the top table, and people need to seriously double and trickle, tip, triple check their lists. 8th edition has been out for six months now, right? Uh, maybe not six months, four, four or five months, almost half a year. It's almost been a half year. I think when chapter proofs come out, it will have been a full half year. So, you know, You've had several months to play your 8th edition games now. Battlescribe is now updated. So you should always double and triple check your lists. And there really, at this point, is no reason for why a list should be illegal. And another thing I want to say is don't rely on just Battlescribe and don't rely on just calculators and just your codex and just yourself to get it done. You know, do everything you can to make sure your list is legal. Go to ITC. There's an ITC list checking group on Facebook. Join that group. There's a dedicated group of people who always check the legality of lists. You know, ask your friends, calculate it out, double and triple check everything. If you think you know the points cost of something, triple check it. Make sure that it's 100% right. Read all the war gear, etc., etc. I just want to say if people want a tabletop standard, you know, on the modeling and the hobby side, we should also require a, a tournament readiness standard on the competitive side, right? You know, there's no reason for people to show up to events with illegal lists with no army codexes no rules with no printed lists with no you know uh supplies for playing the game like a rule uh tape measures dice uh you know maybe maybe uh weighted dice you know who knows whatever you should you should bring you should bring everything you need to play the tournament with you and you should also bring a painted army and both of those should be held to equally high standards both of those should be held to a standard and everyone should meet them. And that's across entire terms for all 40k events, right? So just wanted to give that guys, if, if you're going to an event, just triple check your list, you know, make it easy on the TO, don't embarrass yourself and don't cheat someone out of a win that they could have won because your list was legal. That's probably the bigger thing, right? Cause that's a, that negatively impacts, impacts our game and could potentially you know scare people away from the game and that in turn of course stops the spread of the game which which in turn takes away more money from gw etc etc uh so point two the itc missions will have some growing pains uh gone are the days of late game objective grabbing missions and random maelstrom 
the ITC is the largest single tournament format and used for 40k right now, hands down. So the mission, the ITC missions, they're they're different. You know, there's no more end of games objective scoring. The random maelstrom is gone, and the fact that the ITC is the largest single tournament format period in 40k right now, and it is. And you know, whether you're for and against that, that doesn't really matter. It's the way it is right now. And if you want to be tournament ready, if you want to have that tournament ready format, you also need to know your missions. Tournaments was which you know are going to use any missions are going to have a lot of bumps going forward, and that's just the product of switching to a new tournament format, a new tournament mission format, and not a byproduct of the actual missions. So as you're playing the new ITC missions, it's going to be very very easy to point fingers, you know, at the ITC or at your TO for switching to the new ITC missions, um, for your game not finishing on time, for example, or feeling like you're cheated out of the game. To so do your due diligence, the missions, you know, I am very fond of them. I think. I think you know we worked really hard on them and we designed them the best we could. And obviously, the you know Reese and Frankie asked for more feedback on the lists uh, a week ago, so they're they're obviously still a work in progress. They're not perfect, so there's going to be growing pains. But ultimately, I think that they will shape up to be the best missions in 40k. And I I I know I am biased, but uh, I am allowed to be a little biased. I worked for Frontline Gaming and I did have some input on those missions. I did. I did have, you know, re- I did have responsi- a responsibility to making sure those missions were good. So there's a little bit of bias there. But my point being is that there's going to be growing pens with ITC missions. Give it some time. Play a lot of games with any of the ITC missions. Give us feedback. And if you go to an event with the ITC missions, please don't, please don't vilify the ITC or vilify the the TOs of the event for the missions Um, just make sure that you and your friends all do their due diligence to learning the new missions and everything's going to be fine that's pretty much it Uh, you know third point Xenos players should be sad so normally I don't ever condone whining on the internet in in any form right You, you know I don't like it when people complain about lists normal I'm under the normally I'm under the mentality of if something is is unfair about a specific faction or a specific thing, you know, you should just get better. You should just overcome it instead of, you know, complaining about it or or asking someone to fix it for you. Like, I always feel like if you're if something is is wrong, you know, and you you need to fix it, it's wronging you, you have the biggest power to fix it. And if you don't and if there's absolutely no way, then there's nothing you can do about it and then then there's Really, there's nothing you can do about it, so there's nothing to say about it. So why bring it up? It's just one of those things. It's like hurricanes and earthquakes and taxes. It's just one of those things that just keeps coming at you. There's really no point in whining or complaining about it or wasting energy on those things. But having said that, Xenos players, I think at this point, do have a little bit of of a right to gripe. Uh, just a little bit. And I still don't think you should go on the internet and complain that, that you know, Xenos are the worst and oh, GW loves Space Marines and Chaos and they don't care about us. You know, you probably shouldn't do that. But, but you know, the Xenos players are, um, they're, they're getting the raw, raw end of the stick right now. And that's something we all signed up for. This We all signed up for this codex creep. We knew when GW announced 8th edition that they would rapid fire release codexes and they would reboot with the indexes and start releasing codexes. So we knew that not every army was going to get its codex. Now we didn't know that 
that GW would favor Imperium and Chaos Faction armies first when releasing their codexes. Uh, whether that was intentional or unintentional, I like I like to side on the fact that it was intentional. I, they probably probably did want the Space Marine. Like for example, the Space Marine Codex and Chaos Space Marine Codex coming out first. That was definitely intentional. They they you know they wanted to release their big sellers immediately. And you know maybe maybe this is an indication of of what GW sales are like. Right. So, you know, if you look at it was Space Marines first and then Chaos Space Marines and then Death Guard and then Imperial Guard. Right. So so maybe there's some relation of those releases to what's selling right now. You know, obviously, Space Marines are their hottest sellers, uh, hands down. Chaos are their hottest sellers. Chaos Space Marines are something that people have been clamoring for forever because ever since third edition, when Chaos Space Marines had their crazy, amazing book. So Chaos Space Marines have been wanting you know their book forever now and they finally got it and so you know obviously gw would give it to them there was also that that big camp global campaign that gw was running too that was essentially imperium versus chaos with xenos kind of like randomly thrown in there you know and then guard there uh, we're seeing it now there are a lot of guard players a lot of people with imperial guard there have always been a lot of guard players and i would say that they're probably the before eighth edition they are probably the second or third most sold to faction in the second hand shop which means that there i was getting huge guard armies ridiculous it, it seems like every store i go to there's like a there was in seventh edition there was a giant dusty guard army that no one was using and it belonged to some dude who who loves guard and loves 40k but his army just was garbage and he never ran it i felt like guard were the epitome of of uh seventh and sixth edition and how negatively they affect affected certain codexes and certain factions and obviously you know gw knew that so when they released their code guard codex there's a lot of popularity it's a very it is a very powerful codex and there are a lot of very very happy guard players uh so you know there might be there might be some correlation there but but essentially we signed up for this for this codex creep we did uh, whether you, whether you like it or not, just by buying into Eighth Edition and talking about Eighth Edition and spreading the word about Eighth Edition, you you kind of fed you kind of uh, fed the everyone else's ability to just depend on GW or everyone's depending on GW now. You know we're at the, we're at their mercy. We are invested. We are waiting for Eighth Edition to come out. There's nothing we can do about it. Codexes are going to come out when they come out, released in a certain order. Having said all that, the the codex creep is very real and and you know we we're finally getting our first xenos co we finally got our first xenos codex in the eldar and you know we'll see how it goes eldar look very powerful so you know tyranid are coming next i imagine tyranids are going to be very very powerful and who knows right well we'll we're going to it's going to come and i just wanted to tell you guys that that yeah it's tough right now it is i sympathize but you know we're gonna enter a true golden age of competitive 40k soon it's you know next it's gonna be at the end of the lvo it's gonna be after all the codexes are released after chapter approved comes out and you know some index armies can hold their own but the game is still far from balanced you know imperium and chaos players are still dominating the meta both in the standings and popularity which I i'm gonna give a faction breakout of socal open and kind of use that as my example uh but the cool thing is, is even though you have a lot of Imperium and a lot of Chaos armies right now in tournaments and that are being played, uh, those two factions also have a lot of variety and a lot of diversity, as opposed to Index armies, which can hold their own, but only very, very 
uh, specific niche builds. Uh, I'm going to use Tau and Orcs as an example. Orcs, Orc players are starting to use the same similar titles of the list. They're starting to use Storm Boys, lots of bodies, hordes, uh, maybe a vehicle or two, maybe a Gargant Squigoth, and Weird Boys. And that, that's, you know, all the Orc in all the Orc competitive lists are using the same elements. They're all very similar. And same thing with Tau. All the Tau lists are very similar. They're all using, you know, Tau commanders, maybe with a Devilfish with Breachers in them or Pathfinders or drones or whatever. Uh, but you essentially you're seeing Stealth Suits, you're seeing Tau commanders and Crisis Suits, and that's it. You're seeing lots of bodies, it's very Alpha strikey, and they're all very similar. So, unfortunately, the Index Armies don't have a lot of variety. Uh, but when you look at the flip side, if you look at the Imperium and Chaos Armies, with the exception of Ryan Mead and Aaron Hayden, who had both very, very similar lists, all of the Imperium and Chaos lists in the top 8, and I would say even in the top 16 and top 25, they were all wildly different. As I was looking through them, you know, there there were lists that were very similar and had very similar elements to them. And a lot of the Chaos lists did have Malefic Lords, and a few of the Imperium lists definitely did have Celestine and Primera Psychers, right? They had some similar units, but in terms of overall percentage of lists being different, there was a lot of variety. I would say that on average, maybe 70 to 80% of the list was different. And then there was that 30% core that you would have to run, like the auto-includes, like Brimstone Horrors, Malefic Lords, Primera Psychers, and Celestine Conscripts scions or lesions you know the, that core that auto include that those were all present but the variety was large and overall a codex essentially for a codex what it means for your faction is you have more options to compete and your faction is going to do really well and you're going to be able to play to your own specific style uh, maybe not completely 100 percent as much as you would like but enough to make it vary and to make you stand out from the rest of the crowd so, go on to the faction breakdown. Out of 133 attendees, we had 28 Imperium players with Imperial Guard elements in their army, plus three Gene Stiller Colt slash Tyranid players who also had Guard in their army, for a total of 31 army lists with Imperial Guard elements in them. Now, keep in mind, th this isn't pure Imperial Guard lists. This is li Imperium lists, or lists with Imperial Guard elements. So there was there's 31 people who had Imperial Guard models in their list. And th this is big. This is 31 out of 133, you know, roughly a quarter of the, a little less than a quarter of everyone. So if you're playing in the SoCal Open, you had, you, you were definitely going to play at least one player with Imperial Guard lists. And then like one in every six players is going to play two people with Imperial Guard elements in their list. And out of that, maybe half of those people with Imperial Guard in their lists also were, were just running like pure Imperial Guard, right? So that's definitely powerful and they were definitely the second most represented faction in at the SoCal Open. Now, out of those uh out of those 31 Imperial Guard players, I think uh 15 or 16 were actually like true Imperial Guard lists. So, uh they, they definitely were underrepresented. Um but if you want to look at the most represented faction, that was Chaos players or specifically Chaos Space Marine players. Uh, almost all of the Chaos armies and the chaos space marine armies and the even the chaos demon armies and basically if you were a chaos faction of some kind you you were you had chaos space marine elements you, you had a lot you know so out of those 32 quote-unquote chaos lists almost all but all but one of them were entirely chaos space marines and there was one chaos demon player and he had chaos space marines in his list right so more than imperial guard 
right? And a lot of those Chaos Space Marine lists had more Chaos Space Marine elements than the Imperial Guard, the Imperium lists that had Imperial Guard elements, right? So a lot of those lists, the Imperium lists, they had like, the, for example, the Gene Seer Cult and Tyranid lists. They had primarily Tyranids and primarily Gene Seer Cults with Scions, right? The Cult Mech lists that had Imperial Guard elements, those were m mostly dominated by Admech units but they also had like conscripts or they had a lesion plasma drops troops you know the, the very very small percentage of their list was actually imperial guard but that's not the case for the chaos lists the chaos lists were almost all entirely made out of chaos space marine models and chaos space marine points so that's just something to keep in mind the chaos space marine codex i think is the most powerful codex followed by the guard codex but you could make a strong argument for either one of them but I do think the chaos, the chaos super faction, so uh, chaos space marines, chaos demons, renegades, uh, death guard. I think that's the strongest super faction right now, and then obviously followed by Imperium, and then Eldar are probably the next big super faction. Um, so just just keep that in mind. So there's you were definitely going to run into chaos players. You're definitely going to run into Imperial guard of some sort. Uh, there were 30 Imperium power armor or space Marine players. Uh, the reason why I said that is because there were a few space Marine players that were running. There was, there was two Raven guard players, two salamanders players, you know, white scars player. There was some players that there were, there was some rep equal representation between blood angels, dark, An all the chapters, blood angels, dark angels, space wolves, gray knights, Raven Guard, Ultramarines. I felt like it was varied enough, but all the lists were very similar. They all had, you know, either Razorbacks or Storm Ravens. Uh, a couple of them had Gilliman, uh, which which is actually a stat that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Which is uh, the the models, the the number of Gilliman, Magnus, and Mortarian models that were in the tournament. But essentially, I I decided to lump them all together because they all played very similarly. So there were 30 Imperium Power Armor Space Marine players. Uh, obviously, there was some over that numbers overlapping with the I, IG elements. That 31 number in the traditional in the the very first number that I mentioned. So in total, you had you had 58 players playing Imperium lists, including not including Admech, which brings it up to 65 players playing Imperium lists, and then you had 32 players playing Chaos lists, and almost all of those were Chaos Space Marines. So by far the most numerous number uh, was Imperium, making up, you know, a little less than half of the entire field, and what that means is you see a lot of the usual suspects. I, I actually lost count of how many Collectus Assassins. I wanted to give you guys a number, because uh, I wanted to count how many Collectus Assassins were being used, but I, I you know, I lost track around like 40, and I just gave up. It was, it was a lot. There's a lot of Collectus Assassins there, and what that means is, with those Imperium lists, you see a lot of the same units. You see a lot of Conscripts, you see a lot of Scions dropping down, you see a lot of Celestine, a lot of Collectus Assassins, a lot of Primaris Psychers, and that's the majority of what the meta is made up of right now, is those those units in particular. Um, and I think that that's a pretty accurate representation of what you're going to run into worldwide. So... Imperium by far is the most numerous faction. It's not the most powerful faction. The Chaos players, Chaos Base Marine lists and the Chaos players were easily made they were actually scattered all over the place from the top and the bottom, but there were more Chaos Base Marine players in the top 25% than there were Imperium players who were scattered everywhere. Now that might just be from that might just be from the, the fact that there were so many of them because there are 58 players who played Imperium armies. So the reason why I broke it down into Imperium players with guard elements and Imperium power armor players 
and Colt and Admech was because the power armor players were all kind of pushed more towards the bottom percentage. So a lot of them, the, you know, I think the highest ultramarine adeptus starters player, I think was 16th place. And then from there it was, you know, scattered throughout. So they didn't do uh, Imperial armor, power armor, space marine, Imperium players didn't do very well at the event, but there were a lot of them. So they're definitely something you need to bring to be able to counter. You need to be able to kill things with the three up save especially including chaos space marine lists and that's something that you just if you're not if you can't kill three up armor save dudes who can hurt you back and who have transports you you're not going to do well at a tournament absolutely and that's just what these numbers tell you um, we had 17 eldar players i decided to put the whole eldar into one faction uh, the majority of them were inari by a lot most of them were in Ari. There were two Eldar Craftworld players. There are four Dark Eldar players and one Harlequin player. So, you know, ten in Ari players. There were there was ten in Ari players, and obviously the two two of them made the top eight, which is a, a big deal. So that's something that you want to think about when you're designing your list. You will you might run into an Eldar player, but if you do, you're there you're gonna you're gonna have a rough time. They're they're a very good faction, and especially now with the Craftworld Eldar coming out, you're going to see a lot more Eldar lists, and you're gonna see a lot more of that same Eldar trickery with new tricks. And that it's gonna be something that that's gonna potentially go up. If you remember last year, last ITC season, Eldar were the most numerous faction, followed by Space Marines. This year, they've fallen to maybe the fifth or sixth most numerous faction, and that's if you include all of the Eldar. Um, but if you include just Inari, they fall to lower than that. So, so uh, Eldar, uh, there are a lot of Eldar armies that are just laying around, waiting for their their uh, their owners to pick them back up. So I do expect a rise in Eldar players. Warzone Atlanta is probably going to be dominated by Eldar, Chaos Space Marines, and Imperium. And I think you're probably going to see a Chaos a Chaos player winning Warzone Atlanta. Uh, just by judging from these numbers and then what I've seen from the Craft World Eldar Codex, uh, there were six orc players. There was I wanna I wanna give one orc player a shout out, Jacob Ballard, who went five and one and lost to Justin Gibbs, who ended up getting third place by just three points. So Jacob Ballard, he was a close loss. It was nineteen to sixteen, which is obviously that low point cost, that low point, that low point loss, and that low point scoring game means that the players didn't finish the full six rounds. So just just keep that in mind. But Jacob Ballard went five and one with orcs. So you can see his orc list in the Best Coast Pairings player app. Uh, but I wanted to give him a shout out. He always shows up to events and does really well. And I always hype him up and tell him to to bring it home for the orcs because I, I would really want to see an orc player win a huge event. You know, it, it would make people happy because everyone loves orcs. You know, even I when I first started the hobby, I didn't like orcs. I didn't like how silly they were. But, you know, I've kind of gone fond of them. And they, they're kind of the, the perfect perpetual underdog, right? So, Jacob Ballard, kudos to you. There were two players who did really well with orcs. The other was Rich Kilton, who's an extremely nice guy. If you ever meet him, he is basically an orc player. You know, he, he's very silly, very fun, very hyper. Um, he was. He's just he's a cool guy. Uh, so, so, that was it. There were six orc players. And there were nine Tau players. The Tau didn't do too well at all. They didn't have a good representation. I think only one Tau player went four and two, and the rest all were worse than that. Uh, there was one Tau player. So yeah, I really want I want to talk about him because it's a very funny story. This Tau player went three and zero day one. 
Now, why this is important is because we enacted a new policy where we would pull unpainted models from from your table, right? So if you were playing with unpainted models, we just we pulled them off the board, and you couldn't play with them anymore. So th this gentleman with Tau, he he went three and zero with Tau. And round one at the very beginning, we, we scattered, we're looking for unpainted models. And he was one of the first people I saw. And I was like, those are unpainted models. We got to pull them, unfortunately. And it was about 500 points of Tau, right? It was like a Tau commander, some drones, a few crisis suits, right? And we pulled them, so he couldn't use them. And he won that game. And then he we checked with all of his opponents. And sure enough, he wasn't using them. He apologized. He just he didn't know it, you know, it was a policy, which is understandable. People make mistakes. And he, he ensured us that he would paint them, go home and paint them, and they would be ready for day two. So at the end of day one, at the end of day one recap, I looked at the, all the people who were undefeated. And his list, his name is on that list. And I was like, wow, we pulled, you know, we pulled his 500 points of models. And he went 3-0, and which is awesome. It's, that's a really incredible feat and so day two rolls around i look at his army and sure enough he's got painted models now it's it's good to go and he goes oh and three day two which is silly right you should have just he never should have painted his models he should have just went home and slept and then came back the next day 500 points down again and won the whole tournament which would have been insane if he'd won the entire event you know 500 points down but I just thought that was kind of funny. I was rooting for him the whole time. And when he lost his first game day two, I was kind of disappointed. Uh, there were seven Admech players. Uh, one of them, Rob Porter, who won the Battlezone Ursa in Alaska, which is their large event there. He also was staying at my house. He's a buddy of mine. Uh, Rob Porter didn't do too well, but he's got a really nasty cult mech list. And a lot of the Admech lists were very similar. They all had Castellan robots. There was one Skitari list that was kind of unique and different. It had, you know, had more infiltrators and sicarian dune crawlers uh, but essentially all the admic lists were call castellan robots a maybe an accommodation of onager dune crawlers imperial guard an assassin and and uh dragoons sidonian dragoons and that was it that was basically it they were all very simple and so you're you're probably going to see one of these lists you're probably going to see an orc list a tau list an admic list or uh, a Tyranid, Gene Circle, or Necron list, right? And the tier there are five Tyranid players, two Gene Circle players, and one Necron list. Um, so the reason why I bring up the Orcs, the Tau, the Admech, are because they basically, with combination with the Tyranids, they basically make up the rest of what you would potentially see. Uh, so it, at a round six tournament, you, you'd be expected to see one kind of weird list like maybe he's running primary space marines maybe he's running a, a unique space marine faction like minotaurs or something you're gonna see a list like that you're gonna see a weird list run by someone who just wants to have a good time that's definitely gonna happen uh you're probably gonna see two imperium lists or two chaos lists and then you're going to see one of the other super factions so you're either gonna get two imperium and one chaos or two chaos and one imperium and then you'll probably get an eldar list or uh, a, an imperial soup or chaos soup list or some weird soupy list you're going to see maybe a tyranid list uh, and then your last list will be a random xenos list so just you roll a die like oh I got I got the I rolled orcs so I get orcs or oh I rolled tau I got tau uh, and that that's consistently what I've seen happen is I typically face I've typically faced you know a few chaos players and then like one a few Imperium players, and then one random Xenos player. I never get to play the entire every faction, right? 
And that's the way it is right now. So when you're designing your list for large events, like Warzone Atlanta, like the Renegade Open, that's what that's what you're going to see. Uh, next up on what I learned about the SoCal Open, uh, Brandon Grant is a beast and continues to find winning formulas in 8th edition, which is essentially you just run lots of hordes and you make it so your list can kill other hordes and you give yourself the ability to reach out and kill things and be mobile and... Uh, you don't want to overdo it on the mobility, but you definitely want to stake a claim on a plot of land and say, this is this is my part of the board. You can't come here with my giant horde. And then you push out to your opponent, but don't push out too much. You don't want to overextend yourself. And then you you win with you know deep striking fast units or, or fast units that don't deep strike, but they're really fast, like Gene Stealers or Seraphim or Grey Knight Strike Squads, or Magnus, or Alpha Legion Corn Berserkers, or whatever, right? You want a small contingent of units that get in your opponent's face and harass your opponent, and then you want a large central formation of units that do really well. And this tends to be kind of the trend, right? Uh, you looked at with Justin, Kibbs, Justin Gibbs's list with the with the dread the, the grandmaster dread knights getting in your opponent's face and he has the guard staying back or or david's list with the obliterators getting in your face and then maybe berserkers and then the rest of the units all staying back and take over the middle of the board uh or the maybe not the inari list because those those lists play a lot differently those lists are are kind of they're kind of unique uh and they take definitely a more not a more skilled player but they definitely take more finesse and more patience to play because you have so much fewer models especially when you're playing these big horde lists uh, and also lists like the the Mag Morty and Knight list, you, you know those lists even do that in a sense that the Knight stays back with the chaff and kind of acts like a linebacker and that he's shooting at you know he's everywhere you need him to be shooting at things and then if something gets too close he'll run at them and charge them and you know punt feet them kick them with twelve battle cannon shots to the face and of course Magnus Mortarian are moving up and doing their thing. Right, so that that's kind of the style of list you should be building right now is is that kind of style where you you stake a claim, this is your plot of land, uh, you're not gonna shoot me off, you're not gonna kick me off, and if you do, I've got this big nasty thing that'll stop you from doing that, and in the meantime, I'm gonna get in your line and I'm gonna mess with you. And that's it. That's I feel like that's kind of the winning formula in a nutshell. Obviously, it varies dramatically depending on your faction. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of the winning style that's been doing really well at these events. And finally, the last thing we learned is I Primarch 40k is a fallacy. And what, the idea of Primarch 40k is that Primarchs are dominating the game and they're ruling the game. And, and you definitely do see a lot of them, right? So uh, there were 20 Magnuses and Mortarians at the SoCal Open, and there were by far more Mortarians than Magnuses. There was probably... There's probably 12 or 13 more Magnuses. I'm sorry, Mortarians, and then you know seven to eight Magnuses. And on top of that, of those, there are four lists with Magnus and Mortarian in them, right? So you actually had only 16 players with a Chaos Primarch in their list. So 16 out of 133 players were running Chaos Primarchs, and you combine that with the nine Gillimans that you saw, you there were only 25 people out of 133 running a Primarch, more than one Primarch, one or more Primarchs in their list. Now, th that number is high. It's 25. It's uh, a fifth, right? Because 133 divided by 25 is a little over a fifth. So one in every five players you play was going to be a Primarch. 
but that's actually that's not actually that bad. That's essentially if you go to a large event, that's one Primark per event that you play. That's not that's not terrible. That's not Primark 40k. Uh, you can make an argument that this is Guard 40k in that uh, essentially you, you know you, you're running into more than a third or one in every four players are running Guard in some sort. But even then, it's not crazy. It's, it's still it's pretty varied in terms of when you get into the individual factions. Uh, but when you take the Imperium and Chaos players as a whole, as as super factions, then you're running into, you know, 50% or more of the people you play are just going to be Imperium and Chaos. And I think that's where the variety is bad. Uh, but Primark 40k, I think, is a fallacy. I think it's it's more internet sensationalism in that, oh, there's these Primark 40k, it's this, this thing, GW's making these Primarks overpowered and they're all overpowered and they're ruining the game. Uh, and I think I think in this world of 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 media, social media, where you everyone has to shout the loudest to be heard because of this weird craving for wanting to be heard, you know, this internet sensationalism I think is kind of taking over uh, when people talk about uh, about these primarks and talk about tournament 40k. Uh, so it's just only about a fifth of the field. So you know, it, I wouldn't plan to play against one primark. I wouldn't build your list to beat Primarchs. Um, I would maybe build your list to survive a big unit, a big fast unit like Magnus or Mortarian, because there's other things that do the same thing they do. I definitely wouldn't tailor my list to beat Gilliman or to beat Gilliman style lists, uh, because there were nine Gillimans at the SoCal Open, but none of them broke the top ten, and only two of them went four, three of them went four and two. Which is which is not good. They didn't they didn't go five and zero or six and zero five and one, and th there were a lot of Gilliman's lower lower down far farther down the the, the rankings, so I, I wouldn't plan for too many Gilliman's, and that that's pretty much it. So when you're essentially what we learned from the SoCal Open, is th as with any tournament, you want to make sure your list is legal, you know you want to make sure you know the mission format whatever it is and that you have a good list designed to beat that mission format. And then you're going to be seeing a lot of Imperium and a lot of Chaos. That's just what it. You're definitely going to be seeing a lot of Imperium. You're going to be seeing a lot of. You're going to be seeing a lot of the same models, a lot of the same units. You're going to see Calexus Assassins, Celestine, uh, Guard, Drop Scions, Primaris Psychers. Definitely a lot of those. And you're going to see Chaos Space Marines. So when you see a Chaos player, if you see something Chaosy on their table, just assume that you're going to see some sort of you're going to see Magnus, or you're going to see Noise Marines, or Berserkers, or definitely Malefic Lords. And that's pretty much it. That's where the meta is right now. I don't think it's an unhealthy meta, uh, but I do think that it is stagnant enough to to want to make me step away from it and wait for chapter approved. And that's what I learned from the SoCal is essentially that. So it's not a bad thing. Uh, let me know what you guys think. Well, what are your experiences going to large events? There were a lot of events that large events that happened that I didn't cover today that I could have. And uh, you know, in your experience, what have you guys been running into? I always love to hear your feedback. I love to hear what you guys say. I like it when you guys interact with me. And send me your list ideas. You can send me any questions you might have or any concerns. If you just want to hang out, talk, you can. Email me, frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. I get a lot of fan mail. Uh, maybe not fan mail, but I get a lot of mail from people who listen to the podcast, listeners, listener mail. And, you know, I like it. it it's a lot of fun. I, I love sitting here talking to you guys and talking about something I'm very passionate about. 
Thank you very much for listening. And hopefully you guys will all go to the Las Vegas Open and or the Woods in Atlanta or Renegade Open. And if you do, let me know about it. Let me know your experience. Maybe I'll talk about you on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a good one.